Hey, deserving listeners, it is just me today. I thought I would answer patron emails. This first email is from patron Keegan. He writes, you've talked a lot about family systems, and it has opened my eyes to some issues within my own family. My older brother, who is 30, has fetal alcohol syndrome and bipolar disorder, but he is very high functioning. I've noticed that between him and my grandmother, who raised us, there's an over-functioner, under-functioner relationship. Because of his disabilities, most of his life, he has been treated like he is incapable of being responsible for himself as an adult, which isn't true. And because my grandmother loves him and worries about him, she frequently tries to be an overfunctioner with him. My question is, when it comes to people with mental disabilities, how do we find a balance of understanding that they need some assistance in life, but also not preventing them from being responsible adults through overfunctioning? End of email. Yeah, this is a common issue. And it, it makes sense, right, as you point out, Keegan, that when you have someone with a disability or even like uh, they're insecure or they were traumatized, you know, they have reasons to be scared of the world or to have low self-esteem. Where do you draw the line as a parent or a caregiver between helping that person in a helpful way? And also, uh, how do you draw the line between helping them and hindering them? Because through overhelping and overfunctioning and overprotectiveness, you can harm the child or the adult child, your older brother is 30, by giving the impression that the person cannot do things on their own and by teaching the person, the younger person, the dependent person, that the world is very scary and that those messages can be so ingrained and so pervasive in the young in the dependent person's psyche that they one believe that the world is very very scary when it isn't as scary as they make it out to be and that they are incapable of navigating those those waters so where do you draw the line because on one hand you say that your brother probably needs some help but he doesn't need that much help. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to navigate that. It's a hard question to answer. In in the best of circumstances, even if you have a kid who hasn't any traumas or, you know, has been raised pretty well, how do you know that line? Um, now, some kids will make it happen for themselves. They'll just be like, I'm out of here, and I'm going to become competent whether you want me to or not because I'm 18, I'm moving out of the house, this is going to happen. But what about kids that get along with their parents or they don't really want to move out right away? And what do you do? You know, because at some point you have to push, you have to push the kid. Now, from your standpoint, Keegan, you're on the outside looking in. And so what I might do is talk with your brother and your grandmother about your observations. Maybe you're wrong. You know, maybe you're on the outside looking in. You don't really know what's happening, but it's a worthy concern to raise to say to your brother, you know, I think you're capable of a lot more than the family led leads you to believe that you are capable of. I think that you have, you know, you have some disabilities, but I don't think it prevents you from, you know, doing what you want. Now, the the problem is, is your brother might say, well, I don't want anything more. I like grandma taking care of me. I don't want to be independent. I don't want a full-time job. I don't want to live on my own. And then how do you know that's really how they feel? Are they just saying that because they are ashamed of their schema of incompetence or they're ashamed of their fear of the world or they're unaware of it? Or are they legitimately just 
really fine and content living with grandma? It's hard to say. You know, these are very complicated questions. And just looking at the situation, it might be hard to tell. But again, I would just voice your concerns tentatively and say, I have these concerns. I don't know if I'm speaking out of line, but here are my observations. This next question, I, all, the, all these emails are about family, by the way. This next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, what is the difference between surrendering to enmeshment by divulging many details versus just trying to build an honest, open relationship with someone? How much sharing is too much? End of email. This is a great question by anonymous patron because it really gets to the heart of the matter. Because for some families, they might share a lot. They might have very open boundaries with each other. They might be very involved in each other's lives. How do you know that it's just healthy involvement and, you know, they're on one end of the spectrum where there's a lot of uh, sharing? How do you know the difference between just a really close family and an enmeshed family? This is a great question and a question that often isn't asked and um, people will make mistakes because they'll, they'll look at a family and they'll say, well, that family is more involved than my family, therefore they must be enmeshed. And that, that isn't true. The key to understanding enmeshment is that people are not getting their needs met. That's the key. Enmeshment isn't closeness. Enmeshment is fake closeness. Enmeshment is required closeness. But when you ask people in the family if they feel actually close or if they feel like they're getting their needs met or if they're generally happy and there's relatively, you know, enough positivity in relation to negativity, then that's where the distinction lies. Because you you might look at a family and you might say, man, they share so much with each other. And they might even, you know, some of the members in a healthy, close family, they might even feel like, eh, I don't really, I don't really feel comfortable answering that question. But, you know, for the sake of being close, you know, I'll answer that question. Or, you know, I don't really want to invite all these people to every single birthday party. But, you know, to be loyal to the family, I'll, I'll invite them. So there might be some sacrifices there. But the difference is with some families, they feel required to, and there's a pattern of guilt tripping or pressure or control, sometimes by one person, sometimes by a group of people in the family, that doesn't allow for flexibility. And that's always the key, is if you see a family that's very close and you want to just know the difference if you're a therapist, you know, a really great question is, so what if you as a family member decided that you wanted to do something different for Christmas this year or for whatever holiday? You know, if you know that the family celebrates Hanukkah together or something, you can just be like, uh, what if you just decided this year that you didn't want to go and you wanted to do something else? How would the family react? So a healthy, close family would be upset, but they wouldn't pressure the individual to change. They might do a little guilt tripping, but it wouldn't be the end of the world And the person that wants to diverge from the family pattern is generally allowed to emotionally change, whereas enmeshed families will not tolerate it. That will not be okay, because with enmeshed families, there's a deep, deep fear that if we have difference, then we will fly apart. Okay, this next email is from patron Heidi from Oregon. She writes, the reason for this email is I want to ask about Nicole's brother from 90 Day Fiance and the word entitlement. I want to put some duct tape across her, but so just chime in here. The uh, patron Heidi, if you're not aware, is watching my reaction videos. And this is actually an email from a long time ago. 
so sorry it took me so long to answer this, that there's a person on 90 to Fiancé named Nicole who is a underfunctioner and a dependent person seemingly, we don't know, but exhibits those behaviors. And uh, Nicole, this adult woman, has this younger brother who is a teenager who talks down to Nicole a lot. Anyway, the reason why for this email is about Nicole's brother and the word entitlement. I want to put some duct tape across Nicole's brother's mouth. Yikes, so very annoying he is. I'm sorry for Nicole if this is what she had to deal with in her life. But you've used the word entitlement multiple times, and you're questioning whether Nicole's family has a history of this. It made me wonder what exactly do you mean by entitlement as it relates to something you, you could pass down as it relates to family systems. End of email. Well, patron Heidi from Oregon, I don't know what I was referring to. <laughs> it was a long time ago when I recorded those episodes. But if I was to take a guess, if we're looking at Nicole's brother, and I'm using the word entitlement, in in some families, they will... Uh, give an idea that some people are entitled to impose their anger and aggression or advice or control on another person. And I, I wonder if I was talking about or hypothesizing that maybe in this family, they taught the young boy, the teenage boy, that everyone is entitled to scapegoat Nicole. Nicole definitely seems like the scapegoat in the family. And the teenage boy would have absorbed that idea that, you know, this, this idea of, you know, you're entitled to say whatever you want to, Nicole, because everyone knows that Nicole is the screw up. Even Nicole knows that she's the screw up when, in fact, Nicole is quite capable of fending for herself. But because of all those messages that she is incapable, then she will underperform and, you know, trip herself up and masochistically sabotage herself. Um, I think that might've been what I was talking about with entitlement and, or with the brother, it's possible. There's no way for me to know that he was taught early in life that he's entitled as a, as a man maybe, or I don't know, just who he is to say whatever he wants. Cause he certainly talks like, you know, I, I might've even said this in the episode. I have an older sister that I would have never talked to her. I still wouldn't talk to her this way, but particularly when I was a teenage boy, would I have talked to my adult older sister and the way that he talks to his sister. I mean, he talks down to her. He is convinced that she's stupid, treats her like she's dumb and gets involved in, a, you know, advice giving as a, as a child. <laughs> and it's like the whole time, I think he was 14 or 13 or something when we first introduced him and, and, you know, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, but it just seemed very, interesting to me. Let's just put it that way. All right. This next email is also about Nicole from 90 day fiance An anonymous patron writes in and says, I just watched your recent reaction video regarding Nicole and her family and how she acts childish in front of them as part of the family system. I'm wondering about people who act childish with their partner and what that represents. Is it inherently bad? Does something need to be addressed or could it be a form of play? end of email. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, acting quote unquote childish could absolutely be a form of play and might not have any pathology conceptualization associated with it at all. Plenty of couples will play, you know, you could argue and I would that a lot of our, uh, you know, the nicknames we have for our loved ones, our, our romantic partners is a form of childish play. I mean, we call people 
that we love literally baby. Why do we do that? <laughs> and other, you know, there's a lot of other words too that we we infantilize our partners. You know, babe, hey babe. It's um, fine. It's but it's interesting when you kind of look at it more closely because there's a lot of words we could call our spouses, right? We could. You know, th- there's very few. Um, uh, nicknames that we will call each other that will be uh, indicative of an older person that's respected. You know, we might have like nicknames for each other that will uh, be like an animal, you know, like, hey, my little raccoon, you know, it's always little. So I think we do a lot of this play anyway, and I think it's fine. I, I imagine it has to do with our innate evolutionary based attachment to children and of course we evolved to love cute little children and to to just have tremendous affection for children and our own children and i think that some wires get crossed when we are with our spouses and we will tap into that love and affection by infantilizing our own spouses so you know it's fine can it be a problem yeah i've actually treated some couples that have uh, developed over the years a very childish way of talking to each other as a habit, and they can't, they have a really hard time breaking out of it. And so we've worked in session to, to change that. It's fine to have that as a, in your repertoire of ways of communicating, but if you only communicate through childish play, it limits your ability to speak as adults towards each other, which, you know, you sometimes need to do. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I listened to your episode on enmeshed families, and I have a question about family systems. Is it possible for different members of one family to be disengaged or enmeshed? For example, my parents were divorced, and my brother and I were primarily raised by my mom. I often feel like I'm enmeshed with my mom, but disengaged from my brother. Is this possible, or would you use different terminology for this type of situation? Can there be a variation in relationship type within the same family? End of email. Yeah, absolutely. Some families tend to be, uh, you know, universally, you know, throughout all the relationships enmeshed, and some families tend to be on the disengaged side. But certainly you can, within one family, have a mixture. Absolutely. And sometimes it is based on gender, birth order, or this sort of thing. So it's possible, again, this is just throwing it out there for you, anonymous patron, is that for you and your mom, since you're both women, or maybe you're the older sibling, that you and your mom became enmeshed and your mom didn't need any more enmeshment for whatever reason and your brother became more disengaged. In the family systems conceptualization, we mainly look at the level of dysfunction in a family, meaning whether or not a family is getting individuals and as a group they're getting their needs met. And if a family is more dysfunctional, then they will tend to be more enmeshed or disengaged. It's similar to attachment style. The The more insecure you are attachment-wise, the more you need to rely on, a, on avoidant or preoccupied styles to cope with it. So as a family becomes more you know, uh, pathological, the more they need to resort to disengagement or enmeshment. And some families will everyone in the family will subconsciously agree to orient towards enmeshment or disengagement, and some families will have a mixture. Right, this next email is from Hamid from Tehran. He says, 
I live in Iran, and I want to promote the family systems way of thinking to other therapists and also the masses. From what I have gathered, family systems therapy is a very American concept. Not a lot of Europe or other countries know about these concepts, seemingly. I'm thinking about creating a podcast, but I was wondering if you think there are better ways to promote this idea in universities and therapist groups. End of email. This is a wonderful question, Hamid, and very difficult to provide any kind of good answer. Family therapy as a field and systems theory as a area of psychotherapy has been around for uh, 70 years, you know, it really came into its own in the maybe the 70s and 80s. And we we have professional organizations, we have our authors, we have our journals, we have our podcasts. And we have been, including myself, because I'm in the group of marriage and family therapy, been trying to promote the idea of family therapy and couples therapy and systems theory. And people, some people are receptive to it and some people aren't. And the, the bigger field of psychology and counseling is generally not interested. We have been barking at people for a long time and uh, it, our society is just way too individually oriented. So, and that's in the United States. So, you know, Hamid, you're like, you know, here in Iran, we don't talk about family systems. Well, we don't talk about the United States either. It is an American idea. It's specifically a West Coast uh, generated. Well, I mean, you could argue it goes back to Freud and Sullivan and all these others. But in terms of family therapy proper, you, you would say it, it originated mainly in California and the Bay Area, but and in other places, Philadelphia. But anyway, point is, is that... Um, in America, in the United States, it is a very um, marginalized idea. In fact, there are, I would say, the majority of counselors and psychologists either have minimal understanding of it or don't even know about it. They have never even heard of it before. So it's uh, marginalized within the field of psychotherapy. And if you're going into other places in the world, then it's even less known, right? So uh, Hamid, you know, I don't know the answer. You know, if there's a better way to promote this idea in universities, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> it's a complicated idea. You know, systems theory is very complicated. I had to, I, so I taught systems, I, I taught a class called systems theory in my university for many years before I really understood what systems theory was. <laughs> so <laughs> I taught the class to students having a very low understanding of what systems theory actually was. It took me years to figure it out. So there's so many barriers. It's so much easier to teach individual individualistic ideas. Like this person has depression. There's something wrong with their serotonin and let's give them a medication. Or this person needs behavioral management or this person needs cognitive therapy. These are extremely linear and they're, they're true. They're, they're right. They're sound, they're evidence-based, but they're so much easier to understand than systems theory. I Most of my students, when they graduate my program, do not understand systems theory, even though that is the main theory we've been shoving down their throats for three years. Uh, in my class that I teach at the end of uh, their time, I will sometimes ask them questions, you know, okay, give me the systems theory, con con you know, conceptualization of this client, and I'll get you know, I'll just get blank stares because it's so hard to teach. It's so hard to know. <laughs> so, you know, you're thinking about creating a podcast, Tommy, go for it. But, you know, don't hold your breath for people to actually respond and to have it, you know, have the ideas go, you know, uh, proliferate through a society because 
we've been the family therapy has been trying for 50 years and we've been unsuccessful for the most part. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, when I reveal that I'm a twin, I brace myself for what is going to happen when other people learn about that. It means that I've heard every joke and thoughtless question about being a twin. And a lot of the questions are sometimes intrusive, gross, and or inconsiderate. To me, being a twin means I have a sibling born roughly at the same time as me. It's nothing amazing. How do I deal with not wanting to have stupid questions when I happen to talk about my sister who also happens to be my twin? Should I just refer to as my sister to avoid the whole ordeal? So just chiming in here, yeah, it's unfortunate that when you tell people that you're a twin, people have all sorts of questions and weird reactions to it. For you, you're just like, look, I have a sibling, and we happen to have been born around the same time. Not a big deal. So can you just get over it? Yeah. We have this weird, uh, almost fetishization of twins in our society. They will appear in horror movies like The Shining. Um, we have this association like, oh, twins, it's kind of creepy. And I don't know why. Maybe it's be just because of The Shining or horror movies. Maybe it's because it reminds us that we all come from, especially identical twins, right? We all come from this initial zygote that can split into, is that the proper biological term? We all start from an egg, from a cell, and sometimes that can split into two, and it has this feeling of weight. So if something random happened, my body would have split into two, and I would have an identical you know, it's also kind of biologically, a, a, it's a reminder of our biology when two people have the same DNA, right? It's like, oh, it's just kind of, kind of weird, right? And it's a novelty. And there are you know, lots of movies about this. If you've ever met twins, if you have friends who are twins, or you have siblings who are twins, or you are a twin, you just realize, yeah, it's just, it's nothing more than just siblings. I, I grew up with some twins. And although, I did have the initial kind of weird associations. Once once I got to know them, I just like, oh, they're, you know, they're individuals. And I always thought it was kind of weird that they didn't have the same personality. <laughs> but, or I didn't always. At the beginning, I thought it was weird they didn't have the same personality. But over time, I realized, yeah, I mean, people diverge in terms of their personalities, and it's fine. And, um, you know, one set of twins that I was kind of close to in high school I was friends with one of them, but not the other. Uh, one of them I thought was great, and the other one I thought was fine. Anonymous <laughs> uh, patron goes on to say, Many people express a special kind of betrayal and shock when I reveal to them that I have a twin if we've already been friends for months or longer. I get that people perceive the fact that I'm a twin as important, but being a twin doesn't majorly affect my day-to-day -day life. Should I actually feel guilty when I don't initially disclose my twin status to people? So just chime in here. No, you know, uh, it's a cultural thing that you don't have to feel guilty for. It's unfortunate you have to deal with that. You know, I might tell people, so I just, you know, I have a twin and sometimes people freak out when I tell them that. And I just, you know, I, I don't like it when people freak out about it. It's just a sibling, you know, it'd just be like if you never told me if you had siblings before. Um, I So I hope that me telling you that I have a twin doesn't like freak you out or anything. Yeah. I, I had a, a student recently reveal that she had a twin 
And she kind of had to say, not something that severe, but something along those lines of just like, so I've never told anyone, you know, in this class this before, but I have a twin. <laughs> and uh, I think she knew that uh, based on her prior experience that you have to be very um, you know, aware that people consider it like a really big deal. I, I think another reason, and this is just me speaking off the top of my head, is that say, you know, you have a good friend and then all of a sudden they're like, you know what, I have a twin. I think that uh, because of our misperceptions and understandings, uh, misunderstandings of twins, it almost feels like we've, we're not um, aware or we didn't know that you had essentially like another half to you. I think we as a society will tend to look at twins as halves of the same whole instead of two individuals where we, we think of twins as like a, a unit, a, a set, you know, this, this human being comes in a, in a set <laughs> And to not talk about your twin is maybe it feels to other people like you're not telling them about your other half, like as if you were married or something, which of course is silly going on with your email. Another struggle I've had from childhood to adulthood is when people ask me to describe my twin and I in dichotomous language, like which one of you is the good one? Which one of you is the bad one? Which one was quiet? Which one was shy? Who's fat? Who's skinny? Who's smarter? Who's, who's dumb, etc. I end up feeling guilty later if I answer in a way that makes my twin sound like the quote-unquote bad one. In your practice, have you observed that twins internalize comparisons more relative to other types of siblings? Just chiming in here. Yeah. I mean, growing up with a close sibling, even if they're not a twin, is a particular experience. I grew up with three siblings, but none of them are close to me in age. And so the comparisons between us weren't very frequent. So... If you grew up with a twin or a sibling who was close to you in age, it's really common to have that dichotomous thinking. Like this person is the hyper one. This person is the one who reads books. And this one is the smart one. This one's the dumb one. This one's the good one. This one's the bad one. You know, think about Bart and um, uh, Lisa Simpson. You have very distinct roles. And I've talked about this before in terms of systems theory, but when you have a family and there isn't enough love and attention to go around, the children will actually decide subconsciously to specialize. And they say, well, if I, if I, if I be my, if I'm myself, I can't get all the love and attention I need. So I have to carve out a niche in opposition to my siblings. And so sometimes that'll happen, but yeah, we tend to do this with siblings and, um, and as siblings, we tend to feel that way, right? And with twins, it can definitely be that way. And it really starts from the very beginning because with parents, when they bring the kids home, sometimes they have a really hard, particularly when they're infants, they have a really hard time distinguishing between each, each child. And sometimes they will reveal uh, years later that they weren't really quite sure for a number of months which one was which, and they just sort of at a certain age, they just sort of took a guess and said, well, I think this one is Jane and that one is Jenny, <laughs> you know. And I think that that creates anxiety for the family. They want to differentiate. And so one of the ways that they will do this is they'll begin to impose certain personality traits. Oh, that one's more, this one cries more than this one. And even though it might be barely more or even not at all more, it's just confirmation bias. I think there's this innate um, desire to differentiate, to make things easier. Another reason that pops into mind regarding stereotyping and, and the, why people react weirdly to twins is that in a lot of movies, twins are 
uh, painted in a way where they have like a psychic connection. And you'll even hear reports like this, and it's just not the case. And it was anecdotal reports, and it's fine. But science has looked at this. Twins don't have any psychic connection. Um, you going going on with your email here. Is there a way to say to someone who really means no harm, hey, I get it, but I don't really enjoy the sign of questioning, so can you stop? Um, yeah, an honest solution, just say that. Just say exactly as you just said, hey, I get it. You think twins are weird, but I really don't like this line of questioning, so can you just stop? It's just a sibling of mine. I get these questions all the time, you know, um, and I didn't read your whole email, an honest patron, but what you're reacting to, I think, was when I talked about how if I... You know, if people notice that I'm Asian, they'll be like, where are you from? And do you know karate? You know, they don't ask that anymore. But they did when I was a kid. And it's just a lack of empathy. They don't understand what you're going through. Um, You know, the next time you come across someone with a weird name, like, you know, Michael Bolton, for example, from Office Space, uh, you don't need to make a joke, especially if they're older. They've heard all the jokes. You don't have to do it. You know, someone's named Eileen. Come on, Eileen. You don't have to say that. They've heard it before. Think about even just because you came up with it doesn't mean that they haven't heard it 10,000 times and just have a little empathy for that. All right, let's take a break. Can we get back? More emails. All right, we're back from the break. Just giving a shout out to the old patron praises here. We have people from all the way back who started being a patron of the podcast in April of 2016. So five years ago. These four people became uh, patrons of the podcast. So Simon, who I know, I know you, Simon, you're still a patron of the podcast. We've spoken on the phone a number of times. Also, someone has the name of someday this podcasting empire will rule the galaxy. So on Patreon, you can name your own, you can name yourself however you want to name yourself. And this person named themselves someday this podcasting empire will rule the galaxy. And they've been a podcast, they've been a patron of the podcast for five years. They live in Renton, which is where I was born. Uh, Selena from Sacramento and Sue. I'm pretty sure we know Sue from way back in April. Simon and Rule the Galaxy and Selena and Sue. Thank you for being a patron for so long. Five years. You are OPPs. You are old patron praises. I mean, you deserve old patron praise. This next email is from patron Kia from Las Vegas. They say... I was dating my best friend of three years, but we broke up. He believes that even though there is compassionate love between us, there is no passionate love. I feel this was the case because we were still learning how to be a couple. Is passionate love absolutely necessary for a successful long-term relationship? End of email. Well, patron Kia, it's tough to be broken up with. It sounds like you were into the relationship more than he was, and he's saying, um, was it a he? Let's see. I was dating my best. He believes. Yeah, he believes. And he was like, yeah, we have compassionate love. We have friend love. But you don't have like that oomph, you know, that passionate love. And that's what I'm looking for. And for you, you're saying, well, you know, I feel like we are still learning how to be a couple. And I still wanted to be with him. So, you know, how, the way that people... Uh, frame that this is my perspective and it's not a scientific one, which is that people break up with people for a variety of reasons, but the foundation is they just no longer want to be in a relationship with that person anymore. Think of it like 
it's a much more advanced version of this, but think of it like if you want to move out of the town that you're in or you want to um, change careers or something, how do you know when you should do that? And what in, what what's involved? In, now, there is science regarding like how we make decisions like this. There's all these theories about emotional valence and decision-making and influence and all this kind of stuff. But it all just comes down to, you know, when if you've ever broken up with someone, you might have had a narrative as to why you were breaking up. But take it from me as someone who has been with a lot of people on this journey, unless there's something really obvious, you know, like your partner – uh, beat you or cheated on you or something. Usually it's just like you just wake up in the morning and this, this feeling kind of builds in you. And then when that feeling builds enough, we start to build a narrative around that feeling. And probably Kia, your boyfriend came up with this narrative of just like, yeah, I feel like we have compassionate love, but no passionate love. I feel like I, I like this person and I really like being with them, but I, I'm not really in love. You you hear that too. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Well, what does that mean exactly? What's the distinction between loving someone and being in love? Well, again, I think the foundation of the difference between those two is, do you want to be with that person? And do you want to not be with other people, right? If you're in a monogamous style of life. And so it's now, for the people that are being broken up with, they will often focus a lot on this narrative that the other person has. And they'll be like, well, wait, um, you say that we don't have passionate love, but you, we, we do have compassionate love. Well, my narrative is, is that we're still learning how to be a couple. Again, the bottom line is, you know, the person who is being dumped wants to stay in their relationship. That's, that's the foundation of the narrative. And the person who is leaving just doesn't want to be in the relationship anymore. They want to branch out. They want to be with other people or they just, the relationship just kind of ran its course for them. But anyway, you ask a question, is passionate love absolutely necessary for a long-term relationship? No, there are a lot of relationships without passionate love. And what do we mean by passionate love anyway? Right. But there are lots of relationships that last. Again, it just comes down to do the two people want to be in the relationship and or are they in a culture that prevents them from breaking up? All right. This next email asks, can you give examples of how you would provide corrective emotional experiences for someone with an avoidant attachment style? End of email. Yeah. So with the avoidant attachment styled individual, they, when they were growing up, experienced general emotional neglect and were either made to feel invisible or that they didn't matter, or even that they were tough enough to do things on their own. And the corrective emotional experience for the avoidant person, and it's complicated because there are there's probably, I don't know, close to a billion people on the planet that qualify as this. So we can't really generalize to all those individuals. But some general themes that I will say in my course of providing therapy are the theme of helping them to be vulnerable and being very um, caring as they are vulnerable and very inviting of them being, that's the key for any narcissistic or avoidant person. The key to healing and recovery is vulnerability. And I, I'll, I'll even tell that to them. I'll tell avoidant people eventually, once we conceptualize their personality and their issues um, collaboratively, 
that the key is vulnerability. The key is crying. The key is noticing your needs and telling other people your needs and telling me your needs, crying in front of me, telling me that you are helpless, noticing your helplessness, being okay with your helplessness, asking for help, depending on other people, you know, reaching out to other people for help. That is the key to your recovery. And, you know, if we've been in therapy long enough and I've done my job well enough, they will accept that and they'll understand that and they'll very much resonate with that. And they'll be like, well, now they'll also say it's terrifying because life, since they were born, has taught them to avoid that. That's why they're called avoidant people. But they recognize that it helps and that their needs are met when they actually will do that. So a big part of the corrective emotional experience with me and with others is for them to express vulnerability with someone that is safe and the other person actually responds well to them. Anonymous Upper Tier Patron asks the question, my sister and I suspect that our mother might suffer from factitious disorder, but we know from experience that it would be unlikely that addressing our thoughts would have any positive effect. I was wondering if you had any experience with relatives coping with a potential issue like this in a healthy way. End of email. To review factitious disorder, it is characterized by someone who is essentially faking a bunch of physical ailments, and the conceptualization is that they're doing it to get attention, and they might be in a constant state of going to the doctor, talking with their family and friends, saying that they have all sorts of ailments, and usually they will talk about ailments that are hard to measure, things like fibromyalgia or IBS or other kinds of sensitivities, things, you know, not that these things don't exist because they do, but they're hard. To, you know, if you, if you walk around and say, I have a broken leg, well, anyone can see if you're walking around in your leg that your leg isn't broken um, in all likelihood. But if you say you suffer from massive migraines or these kinds of things, it's hard to verify. And not only for physicians, but also for friends and family. And so, but people with factitious disorder will go to, you know, very um, extreme measures to convince other people. They might, you know, travel around in a wheelchair to try to fake that they are um, just disabled in some, in some way. And so uh, when you are with someone like this, it can be very distressing uh, for a variety of reasons. And then of course we have, factitious disorder by proxy, which people talk about a lot more often than factitious disorder, meaning that you have someone else that you are faking that they have a problem. Um, there's actually a really famous documentary, uh, you know, what is it called? Like Mommy, My Mommy, Mommy Dearest or something. I did a whole episode on it. You can listen to it. Did I, I think I did the whole, I think the episode is just called Munchausen by proxy, which is the way the terminology we used to use in the DSM. But anyway, um, you know, how do you, so you're wondering how, if my, you know, you're saying that your mother might have it, it's just sort of, what are you supposed to do to, um, you see coping? How do you, you're asking how to cope and people often ask this, how do I cope? I don't know. I mean, what are you supposed to do? It's a, a difficult disorder to witness. It's perhaps very hurtful to be lied to. It's perhaps very frustrating to see someone shoot themselves in the foot it is concerning when you think about all the lies that they've told everyone, including medical people and yourself. So how do you cope with that? I don't know. I mean, it's painful. It's worrisome. It's frustrating. 
uh, yeah, I, it's distancing. I could imagine it feeling very distancing from your mom. So uh, I don't know how to cope with that. Um, coping implies, I think, that there's some way to overcome it, which I don't imagine is true. But what I would do is I would consult with a uh, someone who specializes in that, psychologist, therapist who specializes in it, maybe get some advice about how to approach it. You also could go to your mother's physicians and just have a chat and say, you know, I, I wonder if my mom is actually faking some of these things. I'm not really quite sure. Because people with a factitious disorder can be treated. Sometimes they don't want to be treated, you know, but sometimes they they can be convinced. If if enough people gather around them and help ease them into a path of recovery, they can recover. And the uh, the issue sometimes is that the person it's it's essentially kind of like a personality disorder because the person is so convinced of these things and the path is that i've experienced is that they are using the fake medical problems as a way of getting their needs met so the conceptualization is that when they were very young they weren't getting love and attention that they needed and they figured out randomly that the only way they could get their love and attention is if they were sick or if there was something wrong with their body or something. And so it locked into their neurology and to their personality that they need to be in a constant state of being ill to garner any kind of love and attention. And it, of course, isn't true because they can get love and attention through other ways, but they don't know that because they've never experienced life without that. And it's a vicious cycle because as they fake more and more things, uh, the attention eventually dies out. So they have to incre- they have to increase their medical problems uh, in this constant way. They have to create new ones every once in a while to get more and more attention. But of course, as they do this, it pushes people away because people detect that they're being lied to, which creates more deficit of love and attention for them. And so they keep increasing this medical problem fakery. And the vicious cycle completely spins out of control and the person might even injure themselves as a way of getting attention, as a way of proving, you know, okay, you don't believe me? And then they they secretly drink a bunch of toxic um, chemicals as a way of producing effects so that they can be even more convincing to others. And if we can get these people's needs met and really help them to feel cared for and loved and paid attention to, then we can slowly pull them away, change their behaviors away from the factitious behaviors and more towards healthy behaviors. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Upper Tier Patron. She writes, I saw your YouTube video reacting to the Paris Hilton documentary, and I heard your episode answering a listener question about quote-unquote boot camps. I speak from a place of personal concern because my cousin has been sent to one of these schools after experiencing serious mental health issues, and I've heard many horror stories from her. My cousin was sent there by a therapist. It was called a therapeutic boarding school, not a boot camp. These places have gotten smarter, and a lot of the current coverage of them seems out of date. Can you speak more about this? End of email. Yeah, I've talked a lot about this, but just briefly, um, I don't know if any of them call themselves boot camps. Maybe they did. But they often did have these other names, like therapeutic boarding school, this sort of thing. And so that's the first thing. The other thing I'll say is that 
these are a set of schools that vary a lot. Some of them might not be very abusive at all, or they might actually not be abusive at all, whereas others are extremely abusive. So it's hard to generalize to all of them, and, and there are many of them around the world, really. And the, in a nutshell, what I experienced early in my career when I worked with a lot of teenagers who would be candidates for these boarding schools was that, one, the, these boarding schools were extremely expensive, and I would tell people this right away. A lot of, some parents would come to me and they're like, I've heard about these therapeutic boarding schools. And I would immediately tell them that, one, they're extremely expensive in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And two, they usually don't work. That's what I would find. Because I would work with, because in the beginning, I didn't know anything because they didn't teach this in school. And so, and they probably still don't, but I would see, you know, families would be like, hey, we we found out about this therapeutic boarding school. They tout a 80% success rate or 95% success rate. And so I'm like, okay, well, do what you got to do. I don't have any opinion about it, you know. And they would send the kid to the boarding school, and a year later, I'd still be involved with the family, and the kid, nine times out of ten, would come back. And, you know, maybe they'd be okay for a couple days, maybe a couple weeks, but pretty soon they were right back to their own behaviors and even worse. And so the these boarding schools claimed that if you send the cool to the boarding if you send the kid to the boarding school it'll shape up all their behaviors. Um now to talk a little bit on the parent side the the parents that I worked with who were considering therapeutic boarding school were completely um understandable and and justified. These parents were dealing with teenagers that were completely out of control. This is something that is not talked about much, and it wasn't talked about much in the Paris Hilton documentary. It they made it seem like these schools are just filled with a bunch of you know normal kids, and uh, these kids are just being abused left and right. And you know I can't speak to the abuse that happens. There's certainly a lot of anecdotal reports of abuse, which I don't doubt. I don't, and I don't doubt Paris Hilton's account and the others that that were in the documentary. If you want to you know listen to my reaction video, you can go to the our YouTube channel and just, you know, just search for Paris Hilton or Paris. This is Paris anyway. Um, but uh, a lot of the kids, the kids that I worked with were very much out of control. We're, we're, we're talking like they had completely given up on rules. We're talking like a 13 year old who is selling drugs in the basement, who is not going to school at all, who has weapons in the house, who is, breaking the law. I, I, th I think I talked about this in the last time I talked about this, that one kid I was working with, he stole 30 cars in 30 days and crashed a number of them. And the parents are liable for that. So imagine that you have a kid who uh, crawls out of the window at night, every night. And what are you supposed to do? You can't lock him in the room. You can't handcuff him to the bed. It's he's your responsibility. And he would sneak out of the house every night, just basically just walk out. He would steal a car and he would joyride with his friends, maybe get drunk and high. And then sometimes he would crash the car and he'd just walk away from the car. And sometimes he would get caught and the police would bring him back and the uh, maybe there'd be a prosecution of some sort. And then the owners of the car would seek restitution, you know, 
these the owners of the car would you know the next morning they'd come out and see their car smashed up and someone's going to pay for that right you know they don't just eat that <laughs> uh someone crashes your car uh they're liable for that so you seek restitution and you go to the person who did it well what if the kid who did it is 14 years old well the 14 year old doesn't have any money well you're gonna sue the parents and so the parents uh were dealing with stuff like that or the kid was being violent with the parents which happens um, you absolutely there are situations where teenagers would be physically abusive or threatening to the parents and a lot of people in our society, when they hear a story like that, well, they, they're like, well, the parents must have done something wrong. You know, if, if you have a kid that is violent with you, you must have gone terribly wrong with your parenting. I'm here to tell you that, yeah, sometimes, but not all the time. And that is victim blaming. And it's, it's assuming that children are a complete 100% product of, their par- of their, the way they were parented. And they're not. Anyone who has raised more than one kid knows that you can parent children the same way and produce very, very different results based on the temperament of the child. So, and, and some kids get sucked into gangs and this was another whole other issue and the gangs become their family and they essentially become brainwashed into these gangs and the gangs sometimes even tell them to commit crimes against the parents. And so there were behaviors like that. Um, what else? Obviously breaking curfew, uh, destroying property in the house. So imagine every day you wake up and you're, you're just like, I don't know what my kid's going to do to me today. Is he going to steal a car? Is she going to uh, smoke pot and, you know, in, in the house? Is he going to have sex with someone in my bed when I go to work? You know, so understand that there are people maybe living right down the street from you. Cause I, I, I had, I had families all over Seattle and they lived in nice neighborhoods and not nice neighborhoods in every neighborhood in Seattle. There are a number of teenagers that are completely out of control for various different reasons. And these parents would come to me as a therapist and they're like, please help. And I would try to do the best I could, but sometimes, you know, it, it was slow going or the kid didn't want to change or whatever. And then the parents would start looking for more drastic options and quote unquote boot camps were an option that seemed appealing to them, especially because these uh, therapeutic boarding schools will advertise extremely high success rates. And they, you know, the parents, they, they not only want their child to follow the rules, but they're terrified for their child. They're worried their child is going to be sexually assaulted. They're worried their child is going to go to jail for 20 years. They're worried their child is going to be murdered or something. You know, when you as a parent are watching your kid completely flail out of control and you've done everything that you could possibly do, you've grounded them. They didn't listen. You've taken away their iPad. It didn't matter. You've, you know, tried to have a sit down and talk to him. It didn't change anything. Well, it's, you know, most parents feel responsible, right? And they're like, okay, well, what, I got to do something. And so therapeutic boarding schools, again, especially if they're marketed in a way that uh, makes it seem even more appealing, uh, makes them appealing. Another appealing option, which was much more frequent, which is what we call the at-risk youth petition here in Washington state. And this is a petition that you petition the government and ask the government, the, the, um, the legal system to impose rules upon the child. You're essentially saying my child. So this is all based on this case where 
these parents were really concerned about their daughter, I believe, um, their child, teenage kid. And the kid was uh, using a lot of drugs. And the parents were concerned about their kid. And so the parents went to the police and the government and and everyone was like, well, unless the child has committed a crime and been caught for it, we can't really do anything. You know, know, our hands are tied, legally speaking. And then the kid died, I believe. And so then these parents and other people petitioned the government and they created this thing called the at-risk youth petition, which is designed to... Uh, be a in-between step for parents to take action when they believe their child is quote unquote at risk. So they can go to the government and say, even though my child has not committed a crime and been caught for it and convicted, this child is at risk and I need you to help me to get this kid to be safe uh, for the child's sake, really. And it's a weird petition actually. And it kind of flies under the legal radar because Essentially, you have a situation where parents can attest to things and a judge will then limit the liberties of the child and actually potentially even put them in detention just because they weren't following certain rules at home. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, usually what it meant was running away. And the requirement, at least back when I used to uh, be go to court for these sorts of things, was the kid had to have run away from home for 72 hours. Um, or they needed to have strong evidence that they were using drugs, I believe, or there was this third category where they were just sort of generally out of control. But that one was harder to um, prove to the judge. You know, the judge was usually a little bit um, careful about that one. But anyway, a lot of the times the at-risk youth petition was being used in totally legitimate situations, situations like the ones I was talking about where the kid is just completely out of control. We're not talking about, you know, in the Paris Hilton documentary, the behaviors that Paris talked about was that she would go out at night to the clubs and she had a lot of friends in the clubs. Now, remember, she's a teenager at this point and she's going underage to overage clubs, I believe, in Manhattan against the parents, you know, rules. That doesn't sound like the end of the world, we also don't know the extent of it, and any parent should be concerned if their, you know, 16-year-old daughter is going to overage clubs at all night. You know, it's just not a safe environment for that age of, of child. But um, but that's not what I would usually see. Again, I would usually see kids who would be running away for weeks at a time, completely not going to school, violent with their parents, breaking things, stealing things. That was another thing that... Uh, I had parents that I was working with who they would have to buy a safe to hide their wallet and their keys because if if they left anything out, the kid would find it and steal it and sell it. And you think, oh, the kid must be suffering from some kind of drug addiction. Not usually. You know, usually it was just like the kid just, and there are various different reasons for why kids do this. Some of it would be easily, you know, discernible, like, the kid had a lot of PTSD from something or the kid was adopted later and had huge attachment disruptions. Um, sometimes it was pretty easy to figure out where it came from because I started seeing a lot of certain themes, trauma and adoption, late adoption being two of them. But other times it was hard to figure out. But anyway, so uh, what else can I say about that? Can therapeutic boarding schools be used as a weapon against innocent children? Yes. But I never saw that, not because it doesn't happen, but because 
I'm guessing that uh, those families that would abuse their children wouldn't call a family therapist. Can therapeutic boarding schools be helpful? Yeah, there are plenty of people who would report to this day that their time in a therapeutic boarding school went really well. So it's not a universal thing, and it's hard to figure out. Now, the bigger problem we have here, you know, we don't necessarily want to blame therapeutic boarding schools. What we want to focus on is we have a problem in our society where there are a lot of families suffering with a child that is completely out of control, and the families don't have any, they don't know where to turn. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And when they would come to me as a family therapist, it was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, if the kid won't talk to me, we can strategize. And that would help, and I would validate the parents, and that would help. But what we really need is what, in the old days, we probably just had a village, right? If we just imagine 100, 200 years ago, or or in some communities around the world today, when a teenager starts to completely act out of control, the whole village chips in to help with the child. You know, because a big problem in our anonymous society in, you know, the greater Seattle area is that a kid can basically walk down the street and they're anonymous. No one knows that the kid is not where they're supposed to be. Whereas when you're in a village, uh, you know, your neighbors will say, hey, there's Johnny. He's He's been out of control lately. And hey, Johnny, get back home. And if Johnny comes up to uh, my daughter and wants to hang out, I'm going to say, no, I know that your parents need you to go home. So go home and daughter of mine, don't play with him because, you know, so when a village gets together, it will help, right? It will, there, there's a support there for the parents. There's a lot of eyes. There's a lot of ability to modify the teenager's behavior. Uh, but in our anonymous society, we won't have that. The other issue is that we have a, and I talked about this in the previous episode, we have this arbitrary age cutoff where you are an adult. And this was very, this was a very present issue in a lot of these families where as soon as they're 18, there are two things happen. One is the child has certain rights, meaning they can drop out of school, they can move out. But another thing happens, the parents can actually kick the child out at 18. So if your kid is completely out of control and abusing you, before they're 18, and there are legal ambiguities here, uh, there are nuances, but generally speaking, you can't kick your chid, your kid out until they're 18 years old. So there was this huge weight put on this arbitrary threshold of being 18. As soon as the kid was 18, everything improved because the kid was like, I'm moving out. And then the kid moves out and they experience their own natural consequences to life. They, they treat other people like crap and they don't get anything back, you know, because that's one of the problems is the kid would just be treating the parents like crap and the parents couldn't really do anything to the kid, you know. And when you are in the real world and you treat people like crap, people don't want to give you any favors. And some people don't realize that until they actually experience that. And so um, the point is, is that, and I don't want to paint these teenagers like they were devils. They weren't. But uh, something, you know, if you've seen what I've seen, <laughs> and if you're a family therapist or a therapist that works with teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, some of these kids were just completely um, just out of control. And the thing that I would often think about is why do we have it at 18? You know, in other societies around the world and in the, in the history of our society, 18 was not the cutoff. 
the cutoff was something like 16 or 13 or something. And so now it's for a good reason. We don't want 13 year olds getting married and having kids and having to get a job and pay their bills. I mean, that's inhumane in a lot of ways, but it's the theory that I developed over time was that I think some people for whatever reason, say they're born this way or they, their personality develops in such a way that when they turn 14, 15 years old, they're done with authority the 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 sort of thought experience the experiment I have is for y'all listening right at out there you're probably well over eighteen um, and if you know in all likelihood imagine if you had to go back in time and live like you were ten years old where everyone is telling you what to do you can't walk out of the house without a chaperone you can't drive a car you can't earn your own money you can't spend your own money you can't even save your own money in general. Uh, you know, everything is dictated for you. You have to do all the dumb assignments at school. Like, it, I don't know. For, for I don't know about you, but for me, that would drive me nuts. I like my freedom. And I get why teenagers don't like to be told what to do. And I get why some teenagers want to start living their adult free life, right? Well, I think for some people, for whatever reason, either genetics or experience or both or something or circumstance, they want that freedom earlier than other people. And, and, and conversely, some people don't want that freedom until they're older. Some people don't want that freedom until they're 23 years old. Some people are okay with it at 18. Some people want it at 14. And we don't have a society and a legal system that allows for that. We don't say it's okay for 14-year-olds to move out. But 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and in other societies around the world today, it's totally fine. A 14-year-old is fine to move out on their own. If they, if they really want to move out, then they can, and they can start learning how to do life the way everyone else does. They learn that, oh, I need to be nice to people because if I don't, then I don't get things. I need to work at a job. I need to be nice to my boss. I have to be nice to customers. Otherwise, I'll get fired and I won't be able to get money and I won't be able to pay rent and I won't be able to get any food. You know, these are normal lessons that we all learn. It's not like 14-year-olds or 16-year-olds can't learn those lessons. But in our society today, we have determined that they cannot. And the, and the law prevents anyone from even considering that. And I'm not saying that six, we should change the laws so 16-year-olds can move out. But I think it, and maybe I am, but I, in some circumstances, but I think that it, expl- to me, it explained why, uh, you know, some families would just have this, this horrific experience with a child uh, just completely being out of control. And, and a lot of times the kid just really, really, really wanted to be free. They didn't want to be told what to do. They wanted to learn for themselves. And... I often wondered, what if we just lived, you know, 200 years ago and this kid was just allowed to move out and they would experience, and, and sometimes we would even do this. Sometimes uh, it would just naturally happen. The kid would run away, for example, and they'd be gone for like a month and they'd come crawling back and they would say, so I kind of learned that I like living at home. <laughs> Because I thought, you know, living out on my own in a van or at my friend's houses would would be really super chill, but it's actually not. And sometimes that was a wonderful intervention, you know, having the kid actually just, okay, fine. You want your freedom? Go for it. 
and if if it goes well for you, God bless you, but it probably won't. And then you'll realize that uh, playing ball with your parents is actually a good thing. Anyway, I'm sort of rambling. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself and take care of others because we all deserve it. We really, really do.